Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 57. Welcome back, guys. So what are we going to talk about this week? One thing I've seen pop up in several conversations, several um, blogs and newsletters is uh, a rumor that Google may be considering Swift as a first-class language on Android, which is, I'm not sure how much substance there is to the rumor, but it would be very interesting to have Swift as the language for Android. There has been a pull request out for a little bit uh, with the with android swift like ready to go for the most part i think there's some low-level libraries they still need but yeah i I think between google's continuing legal debate with oracle over java and just the need for maybe a new language for the platform Mm -hmm. i've got to imagine that google is at least considering alternatives kotlin is a common one that comes up and you can use already today on on Android. Yeah, but the the trouble they have with Oracle is not so much about Java itself, but now it's about the, the libraries, the libraries, the API, the the SDK. Yeah. If only there is like a whole open source version of the Swift Foundation. Oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> there is. But that could work. Uh, see. I feel like this article has gotten way more attention than it should have because it's very sketchy on details. It doesn't tell us much. It just says a few companies met shortly before Swift went open source. And that's about all they tell us. Yeah. And it's fairly certain that there wouldn't have been enough time between now and or between when that meeting was and Google I.O. to to actually put anything in place. Uh, so I don't think we'd see anything announced. Uh, I think in May is Google I.O. So. Well, and they've already released their next OS version too. Yeah. I guess they could be holding yeah. some other things back. but. Yeah, they, they kind of went, jumped the gun and didn't wait for the conference to, to put out the, the new version. Right, but that's because they always have trouble getting people on their new versions. And I don't know. Swift, yeah, it's a great language, but Google already has a few languages that they've created. They've got Go. They've got Dart, which Dart, I guess, kind of missed its target. But oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Go. Go is a very decent language. Go has a lot of the similar concepts to Swift. I mean, it, it in terms of... Um, language goals it I, I think there's a lot of overlap but you know to some degree I, I kind of feel like Swift was a very designed language you know very intentional design where go felt or feels a little bit more like it evolved and like you know they just kind of added language features in later um, well they started it with a idea that it would be a systems language and they being a systems language and garbage collected at the same time hasn't worked out too well for them. But people have been able to create great products with it. Yeah, it's very powerful language. Um, very good performance from everything I've heard. 
but I've also heard a lot of people complain about the syntax being ugly. Yeah, you could see that. If you want to make a function public, you start it with a capital letter instead of a lowercase. Are you serious? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's, like, it's a little yes. odd. Uh, <laughs> that activated my Siri. Sorry about that. <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> yeah, so there are weird things like that. It's got some warts. Yeah, uh, they they had to one-up Python on convention. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have a true OO model. It's um, more like here's a struct and you can attach some behavior to it. And you can pass a pointer around. So that that's a little different, I guess you say. But Go's been around for a while. It seems like yeah. most of these languages, if Google was going to choose it, it would have happened by now. Maybe the only example that's not been around for a while is Kotlin. Well, Kotlin's been around for a good 10 years, but... Yeah, it, it just hasn't been 1.0. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go's been around about six years, and they do... They do have support for running on iOS and Android using on Android the NDK stuff. And I think you can now use NDK to create actual apps that you know that aren't games or something. But I'm not I'm not too clear on that. So I don't really know where that's going to go. But you've seen all the resources that are out there for for Swift compared to any of these languages. I mean, if anything, Google could be like, "Hey, this is our, our, you know, our easy way to have a nice language that everyone knows how to use, and there's lots of resources for." Well, everybody yeah. in our world. Well, it's there's there's a very growing population of Swift developers out there, and it, it's a definitely an up and coming language. And you know, I, I don't hear very many bad things about Swift from like a language design standpoint. So. I don't think it would be a bad choice for Google. Um, not to say Go would would be a bad choice necessarily, but um, I, I don't hear too many Android developers get excited about Go. Uh, Kotlin, a few people like it, uh, but I think even Android developers admit that Swift is, is a nice language to work with. And it would be definitely a nice thing to be able to use Swift on Android, iOS, and server-side code. Though I, I don't expect that'll happen anytime soon. And if Google wanted to, they could always just pull a WebKit and say, and say, oh yeah, we're contributing back for a year or two, and then say, all right, we have Swifter, the new language from Google that's <laughs> forked from from Swift. I think the license is pretty. Uh, what what is the what is the license for Swift? Could they do that? think they can i think it's a fairly liberal license i can't remember yeah. what it's based on. i imagine it would have to be well i think google would pressure apple to actually put swift before some kind of standards body like ecma if they were going to really invest in it yeah i i think apple benefits too from having more developers that know the language the more popular swift is i, I think apple builds its community up stronger so i don't see it being yeah. a negative for them only people who it really stinks for is people who make lots of money doing swift <laughs> the more the more supply there is the price where supply and demand hit goes down yeah just like all those javascript programmers oh don't hate on the javascript <laughs> programmers 
That is the language you can use today that you can work on all the platforms. Server this side, is true. client side. Yeah. Mobiles. Well, I think we beat that one to death. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, one other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was there's some uh, rumors about some sweet new graphics cards coming out. Uh, so my hope for a, a VR-capable Mac is still alive, even a laptop potentially. Seems like that's part of the reason that Apple's been holding back. So I'm just going to cross my fingers. Yes. Uh, Skylake in June. That's my... Uh, it's my... Skylake and then we've got new NVIDIA graphics cards. So those two are... I think AMD as well. So those two yeah. combined could make for a really powerful uh, new Mac uh, you know, that's very gaming ready. Yep. I think timing's a little bit... Uh, tricky with the graphics card update i think those are scheduled for june at the earliest so we it, it's questionable whether or not we'll see a new mac that features the new graphics card in june but cross our fingers yeah sounds good to me we'll see well all the graphics cards are getting better and better whether it's a, a vr capable card or not is a, another question but well the cards are the cards are really old right now. They haven't really updated them on any of the high-end machines, so... Yeah. And the high-end machines haven't been updated in well over a year. Yeah. Some of them two or three years, so... Yeah. I think the Mac mm -hmm. Pro is closing in on two and a half, three years now. It's a dinosaur at this point. Yeah. And it still it starts at, you know, several <laughs> thousand dollars, so... You know, Apple's policy on not dropping prices is uh i can't imagine sales are still good on that that hardware yeah remember they're like they have that facility in arizona where they assemble it in the u.s wonder if they laid off a bunch of people from there well hopefully they're busy making the next generation hopefully yeah i i think we'll see some developer oriented hardware announcement in june yeah, and not Maybe. just just the whole pro brand you know whether it's for development or video I, I know a lot of shops that use mac hardware for video and audio processing and it, it's got to be getting difficult with some of the older mac pros mm -hmm. they could be using hackintoshes at this point they right argo very well yeah. could that's right my hackintosh is working awesome in my graphics card it's <laughs> super strong and it costs way less than actually it costs about the same as a macbook one so <laughs> i'm very happy with my current Mac, I'll call it my Hackintosh. <laughs> so, this is probably the event that foreshadowed the the downfall of Forstall. Did you guys see why the iPad doesn't have a calculator in the iOS Dev Weekly newsletter? Yep, that was some uh, some good stuff. It seems like even Apple has kind of similar problems that all large enterprises have with yeah. Briefly, briefly to recap, so the iPad was all set to go out the door with the same calculator as the iPhone, just in a much larger format, you know, giant. Just blown up, yeah. <laughs> kid, kid shaped or kid sized buttons, or people with really bad eyes, size buttons. But shortly before it was ready to ship, Steve Jobs took a look at it and said. This is going to be the final? I don't think so. And 
they didn't have the time or resources to get designers to create a new UI for it. So it fell on the floor, on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and as soon as it shifted, I guess, uh, you know, the priority for we need a calculator app was not there. Uh, there's lots of ones in the app store. Um, and there's all kinds of other things that needed to be done. So, I mean, there's still, it seems like, constrained by software engineers with lots of OS-related tasks at Apple. So it just hasn't been high enough priority. No one uh, really cared enough to fight for the iPad calculator. So here we are. How, how long ago did the iPad come out? It was 2009 or 2010. So it's been six or seven years, I think. Yeah. It's definitely been a while. <laughs> it's still on the backlog, I suppose. Yep, and Peacock's working strong, and so are all those other calculator apps. So, yeah, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's going to become a priority anytime soon. There's a rumor that, uh, or indication that there may be a way to actually hide system apps uh, in future iOS updates. So, you know, a lot of people opt not to use Apple's flavors of app and would like to just remove them. So. You know, I'm, I'm sure people who want to use a calculator would would be happy to use something a little bit more powerful like PCALC. So I don't know if there will be motivation for them to come out with a calculator anytime soon. No, don't count on it. But it's a, kind of, it's a cool little story. You could maybe yeah. see that as the beginning of the rift between Forstall and, and company. And it's, it's interesting today, you look at some of the stock apps that are on the iPad, they look like large versions of the iPhone app, like Notes, for example, and Reminders. You know, they they have kind of gone the other way and started making them a little bit more universal. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what they want us to do too because it's a lot easier with auto layout and the iOS 7 visual style change. I'm not big on throw your iPhone app into a um, split view controller and just let a sidebar show up on your iPad. I, I like a different interface for my iPads. Well, who doesn't? But there's not necessarily money for people to do that. Yeah. iPad sales are going down, and I don't know. It'd be hard to justify. Yeah, it would. And there are a lot of apps that that layout works out just fine for. Yeah. Games, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the split view controller idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of master detail type of applications uh, like task lists and and uh, email. Email, notes. maybe maybe calendars. To some, calendars tend to need a, a different layout. Or they can benefit from a, a different layout. Yeah. They still work fine. Yeah, I like the, the iOS calendar on iPads much better more open than the phone. The phone is a very constrained view. Yeah. Although the 6S Plus has a nice, some nice views that the 6 doesn't. I was comparing it to mm. my wife's phone the other day, and I was like, ha I can fit a whole week on here, and you can only fit five days. <laughs> <laughs> and landscape, too. It's probably got right. bonuses for that. Yep, and landscape only, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, so fun little story. Another interesting uh, story I saw come across uh, was the the Belkin 
uh, Wemo HomeKit compatibility stuff has been put on hold. So they make a bunch of different smart home accessories or, or whatever you want to call them, switches and all kinds of stuff. And they had previously announced that they were going to make their their whole line HomeKit compatible. And turns out they don't want to do that anymore. Uh, and it sounds like the reason is because they only want to do it if they can update their older devices to, to all work together with HomeKit. And Apple requires a special hardware chip for uh, security purposes on anything that's um, HomeKit compatible. I think it's similar with like uh, CarPlay accessories too, which is why I think older cars can't necessarily just get a software update even if their on, onboard stuff can handle it. So it kind of seems like a bummer. It seems like it's holding HomeKit back. Have you guys messed around with HomeKit at all? Do you have any HomeKit stuff in your houses? My house is all manual switches and dials because I'm afraid of the Androids taking over. <laughs> the Internet of Things. Uh, I, I think HomeKit's had a pretty bumpy road from day one. They've I think it was a full year from the time they announced HomeKit and when the first devices shipped just in time for uh, the follow-up WWDC. I, I think it's been a pretty slow adoption out there. There's definitely some new cool devices coming or that have been released in the past year or two, um, like thermostats and things. I like the idea of HomeKit. I like yeah. uh, that it uses low-energy Bluetooth and that... I don't have to have some special bridge uh, to use my phone to talk to my devices. And then it works with the Apple TV. Uh, but the home automation space had been dominated by Zigbee for years, and it's going to take time for that to change. Yeah, I don't know if Zigbee, I mean, they were they were big, but there is also the, what was it, X12 or X11 or something like that. I always get that mixed up with the window manager for Linux. Yeah, I, X11 was popular. It was kind of a... X10. X10, yeah. X10, okay. Yeah. That was popular for a while, but then I think Zigbee became kind of like the de facto standard for security systems and home automation. I, I know somebody tried to sell us a whole setup that used Zigbee, and I I opted out of it because I wanted, wanted to see if uh, there'd be a market for low-energy Bluetooth in the future, so so it would be compatible with my devices. Yeah, it seems like Apple has had a bad track record of trying to get, like, ancillary hardware accessories or acquire an authorization chip going. I mean, they had their, uh, like I said, CarPlay, HomeKit stuff, and then also their uh, Beacons. It seems like those haven't really taken off, well, have they? Beacons have a lot of obstacles. You have to turn on location services. You have to have Bluetooth turned on um, so you can have uh, the communication and... A lot of people probably turn Bluetooth off to save battery, and then you also Although it's have on to. By default on iOS, but yeah, yeah. on Android it's not, which yeah, makes it a hard sell. I I don't do it as much as I used to, but I used to turn it off on a regular basis on my phone just to conserve battery. It's not as yeah. bad of it as it used to be, but um, and, and I don't know. Maybe maybe most people leave it on these days, but uh, then you have to have an app. 
that can take action if uh, if a location's tripped in in a consumer space it's a very gimmicky concept most companies that we've talked to you know they want to do something like add location-based ads and there's really no incentive for the consumer when you're doing that you know if they're actually saving money maybe maybe like you know you walk in a store and there were there's a few different technologies uh, related to that that'll give you a promotion every time you go into a store that supports some some app or feature but uh, you know I think by the time you've turned off notifications and location services and Bluetooth you know, you've lost a good percentage of your audience in a business setting like warehousing or uh, you know museums or something like that I I can see it, the beacons working really well but unfortunately there's just too many obstacles for beacons to be used in a general consumer setting yeah, museums are a great example of where beacons are good. I know there's a number of places that have done installations of, of beacons, but it is it's also the hardware. Getting all those beacons out into your retail locations or your your physical place in the world, it's not. Then you have to man figure out how to manage them, and you know how do you know that the battery's not dead, and how do you secure them? Um, Solutions have come along that have improved on a lot of that. But if you're a retailer with thousands of retail sites managing, you know, potentially 50 beacons in a store across multiple stores could, could be more trouble than it's worth sometimes. Yeah, it's it's a bummer that some of these things haven't worked out. It, it seems like like a couple years ago, I was like, I've seen the feature HomeKit. I'm just going to, you know, talk to my phone and and tell it when to turn stuff on and off, but uh, that's not happening. Although I've heard a lot of press lately talk about using uh, Amazon's Alexa to do similar things. I guess they have a lot of integrations with a lot of the existing smart home stuff, more the gadgety type things and like lights and, and stuff like that. Um, but I actually did find this cool open source project uh, to bring the future closer to me. Uh, there's this, I guess it's like a node server. You can run it on a Raspberry Pi or on a Mac or anything that's always running. Um, and it basically creates a, a software bridge and it has support for a whole bunch of different devices. Lots of people have created plugins. Uh, I've got like a lock for my door. I've got a garage door opener and a, and a heater. They're all from different companies. Oh, and I got a thermostat too. Uh, they all have different apps and it's always a pain to like remember which app for which device and all this stuff. And now I can just say, Hey, open the garage door. Hey, lock the front door. Hey, what temperature is it in here? Careful. You're going to set up. Our, all yeah, I just did heads. it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I should, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, you open my yeah. door. Yeah. But yeah, I can set temperature on the thermostat, all kinds of stuff. It's really cool. And you just have to, I just have this, this process running on my Mac mini and it uses like a bonjour to talk to my Apple TV so I can even, you know, do it from outside of my house. Uh, so it'd be really nice if HomeKit caught on, but it doesn't seem like it will. But if, if you have a bunch of random smart home devices and you have lots of Apple stuff, check out HomeBridge. It's pretty cool to kind of do that. 
now without any extra cost. So yeah. check it out. I'm waiting for the dust to settle. You're waiting for the Swift dust to settle. I'll wait yeah. for this home automation stuff to settle. Yeah. I don't know if it ever will. That's why I just gave up. <laughs> I think but yeah. there's a whole bunch of startups now trying to provide tools for managing the Internet of Things. So if it's not HomeKit, you know, it may be something else. But it's difficult to get a bunch of different hardware manufacturers all using the same standards and open to devices talking to each other. And then there's a whole security issue around that. Is that Internet of Things is probably your biggest vulnerability in a connected home? Yeah, yeah we'll just, probably. <laughs> we'll, we'll just get the government and the FBI together, and they'll design something that'll work for everybody. And yeah, that sounds like that, a right? great idea. <laughs> <laughs> See, and there was also a lot of buzz uh, this week. Um, Brent Simmons on his blog had been put a post out in response to uh, another post on I think it was the RX Swift revolution and uh, he kind of came from the other side about questioning whether or not it was necessary and a better way of programming versus the way we've been doing things for years and uh, you know I would definitely go back and read that article both articles and then that continued on with a series of articles and, and <laughs> Brett kind of has changed his position a little bit. He's a little bit more open to the idea. It seems to be more receptive to the idea or the problem that React um, RX uh, Swift is trying to solve, but questions whether the current implementation is is better or in a good final product. I think he talks about it as being a, a great start and is excited about the people who are going to push it forward and is looking forward to the pretty version that comes later. I don't know. Did you guys read these articles? I read the, uh, the one where he was kind of poo-pooing RX Swift and then the one where they did the search bar sample. Yeah, I didn't he, read any of the other ones past that. Yeah, yeah. There is some more after that, but I, I did like the uh, just the the simple search bar example and showing both approaches. He talking about what was good about each and what was bad. Um, I like the, yeah, the comment about uh, RX code looking like somebody threw Pearl into a blender. <laughs> and, that and, must have been from one of his earlier posts because he was no no that was, was uh that was the last that was the one i think it was today really? actually <laughs> okay it wasn't his quote he was quoting someone else but oh <laughs> uh, I, I could definitely see uh, some people coming from that perspective because with rx you have a whole new set of lingo and style of programming it's fairly consistent across platforms but you've it it does create a barrier to adoption that you've got to learn all the new jargon and style and think about how to solve problems in the RX way as opposed to the way most of us are used to doing it. And and I I see I see some value in, in both sides of the argument. 
and and I think it's really good that that conversation is happening, and hopefully we'll drive towards better solutions. I don't know what the right answer is at the moment. I I'm still struggling with whether or not the cost of adopting something like RX Swift is worth it. You know, I I don't think that style makes you more productive in terms of how much code you write. In some cases, you're writing more code. I don't know if it's necessarily more readable. It kind of depends on how familiar you are with the, the jargon and the syntax. Uh, but it probably saves you time later on in, in tracking down state-related bugs. I think if you're going to write, if you end up, if it ends up that you're going to write more code in reactive style than if you would for imperative style, you might be using it in the wrong situation because it it really is. It's about taking all your asynchronous program and unifying that into something that can be reasoned about. And if you're not dealing with a lot of asynchronous things in state, then you probably shouldn't be using RX Swift in that situation. Quite possibly. I mean, to some degree, you know, RX Swift or really RX in any language, you you can see common scenarios where people are basically piping together these commands, chaining these commands together, and it's almost like somebody like on the Unix command line is just piping an entire program into of little discrete functions into one line of code and you know i i think that's where the pearl and a blender comment comes from so you certainly could can write very unreadable code with it and and unnecessarily chain things together yeah a lot of times the trouble gets into when you've got to pass in multiple closures it can be kind of hard to see where one observable begins and the other one end and then where it ends because you know maybe you're filtering and mapping and then flat mapping and concatenating and doing all this other stuff and these things that all require different closures to pass into them and if you don't format your code nicely it's going to be a little difficult to see how all that works together and I don't know if a, if a uh, Swift code formatter is going to treat it very kindly either. Yeah, there is no Swift code formatter, official one anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really like how it's, yeah, I really like how it's, uh, it's pretty declarative looking. It, it reads like if you knew what all the things were doing off the top of your head, uh, then it would make a lot of sense. But I think a lot of the, Kind of there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction to like oh these are just terms that i'm not familiar to using uh and to be honest a lot of the a lot of the rx swift stuff is over my head right now too because i haven't really dived in and and taken a look or had a need to yet but i am like brent more than willing to to let you you two brave those pathways for me and hopefully <laughs> we get some something that's even better or this this just becomes the standard or something like that and uh, later on um well and another point that brent makes is it's a fairly large 
third-party library that you're depending on for a good portion of your application and you know that's something that you want to do with caution you know whether it's apple or or yeah. somebody else you know you're you're trusting that library or framework uh with potentially your livelihood um so you, you need to make sure that it, it's a good fit and it's something that you can support and will be maintained in the future well that's the case with all third-party libraries that you would bring in none of us here are adverse to using cocoa pods and i think every one of us here one of the first things they do is fire up their text editor and throw in af networking or alamo fire into a pod file yeah yeah and and yeah. the article talks about that too and and i think it's a valid point that something like af networking af networking or alamo fire has become almost a de facto standard that is very widely used and can be trusted for the most most part i mean and af networking has had security flaws in it in the past um that quickly got fixed but you know you do have some potential there apple's had issues as well so apple's not perfect either um there are there are frameworks that don't get in your way and just make it easier to do your job and then there's frameworks that are a little bit more invasive and everything you do goes through those frameworks so if you needed to get away from that framework it would be painful yeah this one this is not a library that it kind of has one single purpose uh it it's like the meat of your code so it's, if you it's all your glue code it ties it all together <laughs> yeah so like if you if you needed to replace af networking in the future because it got discontinued or something uh, there's kind of a narrow focus. Hopefully, the way you've written your code, the networking stuff is all kind of in one layer, and that may not entirely be true, but it's it seems like it'd be really hard to isolate the RX Swift stuff into something that could be swapped out for something different uh, if, for whatever reason, RX Swift stopped getting maintained or, you know, for some other reason you had to switch away from it. That's that's kind of the scary part for such a big dependency for me, and I think Brent mentioned that as well. Yeah, and and I'm not trying to argue against RX Swift or RX in general. Uh, you know, I, there's definitely merit in that approach, and personally, I'm trying to decide is it is it an undertaking that I'm willing to commit to uh, for my applications going forward because the cost of entry is still pretty high. You know, the, the guy from uh, Netflix said typically they see about a two-month learning curve to learn RxJava for server-side, so I have to imagine it's something similar for for Swift as well. So um, if I'm going to make that, that investment, you know, I'm kind of committed to doing that. Yeah. So it's not not a decision I would take lightly. Yeah, and there must be some reason why all the people who have really dug into it are like, I love this, you know, I don't really want to go back. Yeah, I, I uh, hear that a lot, whether it's Rx Swift yeah. or Reactive Coco or, you know, Rx Java. You know, I think once you've you've gotten past that that first milestone, that first um two months. Yeah. Once the light bulb turns on you don't want to turn it back off. Yeah. 
And, you know, I definitely see, like, you know, we had it the other day where states being changed in multiple places, and it's like, this is just painful. You know, I, I definitely see the rationale for something like Rx to consolidate all your state changes into a more localized area, so they're, you're less likely to have those side effects and those types of bugs that that cost you later. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't write a lot of code these days that takes completion blocks. I don't write a lot of code these days that uses Grand Central Dispatch or operation queues. At least not my code. I know under the hood, some of that code is being executed that way. But is part of that because Swift doesn't have kind of its own first class ways to handle asynchronous stuff, but RX Swift is a solution for it? Um, well, like C Sharp has the async await keyword, but I think mm -hmm. that's more of a uh, promises style where you kind of just walk through some code and execute right. some things. It's not a um, it's not a functional idea. But I, I guess what I'm asking, is it the functionalness of it that that sells it for you, or is it just the fact that uh, functional or not, this is the the best way currently in Swift to handle all this asynchronous behavior? And maybe it's because of the React, but maybe it's just because there's not something else that's better yet. It's hard to say. I guess some of it is the functional aspect. Yeah, it is interesting that when I write something that makes a network call and I take that observable back and then I map that into something and then inside of that, I might be mapping the some of the values that came back from my server into another thing. And you look at that code and you're like, oh, it's kind of hard to see what's you know, regular Swift and what's RX Swift because it all just kind of blends together. And that's, that's a, a nice a nice feature. So given how much time we've spent on the topic, I, I think, you know, this episode and previous episodes, <laughs> if you haven't started looking into RX and those styles of programming, you know, it's probably worth taking some time and reading up on it because it's likely to come up again. Yeah. Now I know at work, we are making the transition from Objective-C to Swift and with a hopeful endpoint of even using RX Swift. But right now it's a matter of getting guys that are used to Objective-C used to Swift first. So going from... Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a rough, rough yeah. path to go down. Argo, it would be a very uh, difficult pill for you to swallow, I think to go all the way to RX Swift. For for me personally in my apps? Well, yeah, personally for you, just yeah. because that's you're gonna have to jump two levels instead of one at a time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's not as much of a a benefit for me. If I was doing something greenfield, then oh, it yeah. makes a lot more sense. The ramp up curve for somebody that only knows Objective-C to switching over to using Swift and RxSwift at the same time would probably yeah. just murder any project. 
Oh yeah, I, I can see if you're a, like a bigger company that has lots of uh, people that you want to be able to get new people at any time or or whatever. It would make more sense at least to do the the swift transition, just because it seems like that's becoming a more common thing in the marketplace. More anyone who's starting out with iOS, they're learning Swift, and then they begrudgingly have to figure out this Objective C stuff uh, <laughs> afterwards. Um, so I think it makes sense if with a large code base on a very big project with lots of people working on it, that you start getting it to Swift, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, you can't turn the ship around all at once. You have to <laughs> yeah. go in, in phases. Yeah. That just sounds scary to me. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> get some good guys. Yeah. We'll eventually get there. Speaking of uh, some guys who eventually got there, we we have an app of the week this week. Yes. So so Chris, one of our uh, loyal listeners to the to the podcast, um, actually is is local, and we've we've talked to him a a bit, and he he had been kind of keeping this uh, this side project and the fact that he even knew how to program kind of a secret. He'd just been coming to our, our meetups as a kind of like an enthusiast, but he'd had this app, this Mac app that he'd been working on for a while that he's been using in, in his day job for a long time and it worked for him. And when we found out about this, we were like, all right, Chris, you must ship this. So, you know, fast forward a couple months and uh, he's got his, LLC uh, internodal uh, set up and he's got his app release. He got a designer to work with and all this stuff. The app is called agenda minder. It's, it's an app for basically uh, managing agendas at meetings, sending follow-up emails, assigning tasks to people. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been in a lot of very meandering meetings and this, this is one tool that uh, can help, help get them back on track. Yeah, if you're in a meandering meeting and your boss is the one that's <laughs> running it, maybe you could uh, gift it to him, gift this app to him. So it's called yeah. Agenda Minder. It's on the, the Mac App Store. And he did uh, his first day. He got, what, top? He got into the top 30 in the productivity category? Top, top 10. Top 10? Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, he he's just telling us that he's going to retire to his uh, own personal island that he buys soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, just the the fact that he went out there is a this is a little hobby that he had, and he shipped that. So I mean, that's probably how a lot of people got started. Right. Depends a... depends what's a hobby when you're when you're programming during the day too, but. Yeah, but it is a good, solid first effort. Yeah. For, for 1.0, it, it does the job really well. Yeah, so there'll be a link uh, in the in the show notes. Uh, go check it out. Yeah. Buy it. Give them a nice review. You guys. So I think that's about all the time we have left uh, this week. So why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Corder. I'm at Alex Argo. You can find the podcast at Shared Inst on Twitter. Uh, SharedInstance.com uh, if you want to find show notes. And 
find us on Slack, uh, just go to chat.sharedinstance.com um, and get hooked up with that. And we still have our survey out there. If you have any feedback for us, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and uh, give us any other feedback uh, that you may have. Um, I think that's about it. We'll see you guys next week. So I think that's all the time we have. And big pause. <laughs> I thought you were going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to finish us out. I didn't know, I didn't know where to go. <laughs>